Greetings, Parish Orphans and Retrogrades. Today, I have a special show for you with Father Robert Sirico of the Acton Institute. He's been on the show a couple times before. And your appearance, Father, is special today because its book ends uh, from the beginning perspective. Uh, the campaign you're going to be doing for this book, which comes out May the 10th, 2022. It's called The Economics of the, the Parables. And I am right. really excited for this one. Welcome back to Rules for Retrogrades. Thank you. It's good to be back with you. Thank you. You know, from past conversations we've had, I, I, I think the first time you ever came on the show, it was called uh, CAF Min Gov Week, Catholic Minimum <laughs> Government Minarchy Week. And, you know, I was, I was probably most excited about interviewing you, though. It was six really good interviews. You know that I'm curious about the economics of the parables. I'm curious that the left-leaning church never deals with this topic of the two talents, which I've, I've used this thing for, for 15 years yeah. as a counterexample to the idea that uh, Christ hates the notion of investment. It's like, well, he's, he's admonishing it for, a, for an opening shot, a big yeah. opening shot. Could you explain to us whether or not as a matter of fact, Jesus meant what he said when he told us the principle of the two talents? Well, let, let me start off by saying uh, I tried to inoculate the reader right at the beginning that what I'm not proposing here is a kind of Catholic theonomist approach. I'm not saying that there is a, a Christian economics. I'm not saying that there is a biblical economics. The, 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 par the economics of the parables is not the economic ideology taught in the parables. It's the reality of economics as human action that is presumed by any person who's going to use metaphors or examples drawn from the world of commerce uh, or, or things that touch on, on commerce. So, uh, of course, what you see in the parable of the talents, that's the one you're referring to because this, is, this appears several times in various of the synoptics, um, is the reality of needing to produce, to be creative, to engage your creativity in response to the call to fidelity. And that's exactly what happens with these servants who are entrusted with these talents. Uh, and I think what's most interesting about it is the reaction of the one who buries the talent. Now, notice he doesn't lose the money. He just doesn't replenish it. He doesn't produce it. And it's his attitude toward the master. Do you remember what he says to the master when the master comes and says, what did you do with my money? Well, he says he was scared. That's right. the first thing he says, I was afraid. And that's important because certainly in an economic sense, no one who is going to be economically creative can do it without having some risk. That's, right. that's why we're not all wealthy, right? Is that it takes some risk. But the second thing he says is, I knew that you were a cruel man, right. gathering where you have not scattered, reaping what you, you know, didn't sow. And so I hid the money. Now that tells you what his attitude is toward the master. This, and, and this is what I'm trying to grapple with in the economics of the parables is to show the transcendence or the transcendent meaning of the, the passages from the world of scarcity, which is the world in which the question of economics arises. 
And when this man says this to the master, he really, well, I can't say he's echoing. Marx is echoing this man's attitude uh, because that's their accusation against people who are involved in enterprise, that you're right. gathering what you, you, you have not added any value to this thing. You're the exploiter. And that's what this man, who should have been grateful for the opportunity to the master, nonetheless is resentful. In the tradition well embraced by Acton Institute from uh, Leo, Leo, I guess we call it the Leonian tradition, beginning with Rerum Navarum, 1891, through Quadragesimo Anno, 1931, embraced by, very warmly, by Pius XI, picking up on many of the insinuated notes of Rerum Navarum and explicitly yes. expressing them uh, socioeconomically. And then even, um, what would it be, 60 years later, taken up by John Paul II in uh, Centesimus Anus. I forget how many of these three linked socioeconomic encyclicals, Father, pick up on this point. It's either two of them or all three of them. They make specific the Leonian point that, um, that when we're talking about oikonomia, when we're talking about economy, we are not just talking about dollars and cents alone, because yeah. Leo says, I used to know the paragraph in the exact verse, so I'm forgetting, uh, somewhere, somewhere in paragraph 70 to 80, he says quite explicitly, it's not, egalitarianism is foolish, because we're not all given equal talents of mind, we're not all given exactly. equal talents of purse, we're not all given equal talents of looks or athletic ability. Right. This is what's lovely about Jesus's parable of the two talents that, that you keyed into right away in your, that first answer. A economy includes everything. It's comprehensive. So right. the idea of taking, parceling off one section of life, dollars and cents, and trying to egalitarianize that, equalize that, is as foolish as the short story Harrison Bergeron, right? Where the good-looking good people have to put a paper bag over their head or the athletic people have to carry around extra weights. Right. And the, the, the two talents keys into this as well. It's about scarcity and anyone who wants to do anything worthwhile, economic in the dollars and cents sense or otherwise, yeah. you got to take a risk. You got to be brave. And there's virtue involved in being brave, isn't there? I, I think so. What's fascinating about the talents, uh, both the one you're referring to, um, uh, or the parables, the one you're referring to, but also it, it pervades all of them, is their enduring nature. And I think part of the reason that they are so enduring, I mean, <laughs> with all due respect to us, I don't know that 100 years after our death, people are going to be exegeting our texts or our podcasts, right? Here's 2,000 years later, we're still grappling with the parables. And part of the reason, I think, is precisely the vagueness of parts of the parables, the ambiguities in the parables, the fact, the fact that you don't have resolutions to things or that things seem contradictory within the story itself. Uh, Jesus surprises us repeatedly with the reversal of fortunes that occurs, whether it's the uh, laborers in the vineyard or the, uh, the story of the rich man and Lazarus, uh, so that within the vagueness, we have the opportunity to meditate on 
and even put ourselves into these stories and wonder how would I have reacted? Were I there? What would I have done uh, if I were the last uh, in the line of the workers being paid after having labored all day in the vineyard? Uh, or, or another question dealing with this parable of the talents is, uh, what if the successful entrepreneurs that Jesus entrusted his talents to lost the money? Because you say there's risk. What if they had lost the money? They made right. a good faith effort. What would have been, we would have had a whole different parable. What would have been the reaction of the master? Right. Which happens a good bit of the time. In, yeah. in the marketplace forces are such a uh, force of entropy. Yes. Right? And not, not all failures in the market are moral failures. You know, this is, this is the um, testimony against pro- uh, prosperity gospel. You know, that uh, you, you have to be prosperous if you're really a child of God. And if you don't, if you're not prosperous, it's you don't have enough faith. That's the ideology of the prosperity gospel. That's not the philosophy of the gospel of Christ, that market failures are not necessarily moral failures. They may be miscalculations. They may be weather-related, you know, uh, catastrophes that happen that have nothing to do with one's choice. Yeah, I want to ask you, something regarding the metaphor. Well, it's a linguistic overlap. I'm not sure if it's intended to be a metaphor. Maybe you know. Talents of silver, talents of, you know, they mean they, they mean personal gifts from the Lord that are marketable, but they're, they're a talent whether or not they're marketable. Is there a, a moral analogy to be drawn between what you just said against the prosperity gospel, hey, not all failures in the marketplace, not all misuses of your silver talents are moral failures. How about are all failures of um, misuse or misspent talents or perhaps just bad luck of your, your non-economic talents? Are these all moral? I mean, is there are we supposed to draw from the... Uh, Aristotle would call it an equivocal term, talents of silver, talent in the sense we use it in more commonly in English. Should we well, we get that of- from this, from the monetary unit that's uh, employed in this thing. We get the word talent and we, we have now broadened the meaning to say gifts uh, that, that the, as we commonly use the word talent. But yes, I think it does stand uh, in complete uh, opposition to the philosophy of um, both, by the way, I think the parables in general, but to the philosophy of prosperity gospel, but also liberation theology. I cite a number of liberation theologians who want to eisegete the gospels uh, and to impose upon these gospels a certain set of uh, ideologies that are not I mean, really, when when I'm asked, well, what was Jesus's economics, understanding of economics? Well, there was no economics. Uh, Economics comes later. Uh, This is just the world in which people live that is scarce, where time is scarce and resources are scarce. And then you trade and you you look for opportunities. uh, uh, And that's what becomes a systematized notion of economics. So it it isn't that Jesus is teaching economics. If anything, he gives us the moral framework in which we can build a good economics. Yeah, that's that's interesting. The the moral framework is what any good Catholic should be considering anyway, as as he considers economic decisions. 
if can I ask you a question about the the vineyard workers? Uh, yes. Yes. That's uh, a rough one, isn't it? <laughs> it's a. It seems like a rough one, but I mean, well, first off, as a preliminary matter, what's more common? You uh, as, as a as a priest heading the Acton Institute, being being open and notorious for doing so, running into gainsayers who throw at you prosperity gospel in Catholic circles or some iteration of, uh, of liberation theology. I know what, what I would guess. Well, in Catholic circles, it's more liberation theology. It's more yeah. from the left. From yeah. the evangelicals, you'll get some of the uh, prosperity gospel stuff. So that's what I get mostly, you know, questions like, uh, well, didn't the early church, wasn't the early church communist? Or I had one, uh, we were doing a session on, um, uh, I think it was the parable of the talents. And the, a priest got up, it was a seminar with priests, and got up and said, well, this is completely, you're, you're reversing what the real meaning of the gospel is. The, the bad guy in the gospel was the owner uh, who gave the money, and the good guy was the guy who didn't make a profit. And I said, well, isn't that, I said, that's the first time I've heard that. <laughs> and nobody in the whole history of commentaries has come up with that one. I, I think actually there is a, a line of thought on the left because they can't let it just stand in its most obvious uh, understanding. Yeah. Have you ever re have you ever read that uh, retelling of the story of Little Red Riding Hood from the perspective of the Big Bad Wolf where she's no. really the interloper and her grandma is uh, like a tax cheat or something. And therefore he had every right to eat the oh, grandmother. It's sure. I can understand that. Yeah. I suggest Yeah, that's right. And, and I, I handle a few of these in the, um, in the book, in the course of it, of course, one of them published by uh, Orbis, a book, a whole book on this kind of stuff uh, published by the Catholic liberation theologians of North America. Great. Mary uh, yeah. Noel. They used to be restricted to South America and, and they've moved north like a uh, kid Cisco or something. Like, you know, but well, we could digress, but I don't think it was ever really South American. I think it was always a, a Western European idea. Gutierrez, uh, Boff, these guys studied in Germany and brought back political theology and then placed it in a Latin American framework. Boff, yeah, he's, he's allegedly we're told Francis hates liberation theology, but isn't Boff quite close with Francis? I, I don't know if they're close, but yeah, no, he, he certainly likes him and has been generous toward him. The Pope's own uh, approach is more um, uh, what, what they call people's theology. It's not the kind of Marxist approach. It's more the um, the Latin Latin American Peronist approach that that uh, Francis grew up with. Yeah, Latin populist left of center that that gets thrown thrown out as Peronist right, but but to North Americans we'd say this is Latin populism, which is still left. Of well, I want to bring you back, Father, yeah. to the vineyard workers. What I'm going to do is I'm going to let you chew on this question because this is sort of the central question of the interview, as far as I'm okay. concerned. Okay. Then I'm going to. I'm going to um, do some shout outs and you think about it. So first, here's, here's my question for you. The central one of this interview, the, the vineyard workers, is this parable about private sector charity or, or are we being admonished toward 
private sector charity, or public sector redistribution, redistributionism. So think about that. We'll, we'll play our Jeopardy music in our head. And for right now, since we're thinking of economics and things like that, I want to remind everyone the economics of YouTube works as such. You have to click like, subscribe, and hit the notification bell or else uh, you're not going to be able to see our videos in the future. So do so now. I don't bother you guys enough to do that. Parish over the retrogrades. Also on the, the crass petty domain of economics, people ask me all the time, how come we don't call out how to support the program more often or at least once a show? Many shows do it three times a show. Well, it's Patreon. Go to Timothy J. Gordon, Patreon. We try not to annoy you, but there are lots of extra benefits you get in 2022 that patrons did not get in 2021. Also, the economics of space. I urge everyone out there with regularity, as I urged many years ago when I wrote Catholic Republic, to get to your truer republic, which is your state. States' rights is what subsidiarity calls us to, what Roman Catholicism calls us to. If you live in a blue state, you need to get to a red state. That's what I say. Get from, as I did, the bluest of the blue to the reddest of the red here in the blood red swath of southeastern American states from Texas to Florida. Uh, go to realestateforlife.org and a good pro-life, nine out of 10 of them are Catholics, will help you do so. It is realestateforlife.org. And now we can get Father Robert Sirico, who's publishing uh, who's about to release the economics of the parables on May the 10th. In there it is right there. Oh, it's beautiful. on Amazon for pre-order. Uh, so you can get it. Well, uh, you know, how in the world can you get uh, the distributist state from this parable or, or the, the other parable that's very often used is the good Samaritan. Here's the model for the welfare state. Um, right. And the reason I say in both of these cases that it's impossible is the whole presupposition it is that in the case of the owner of the vineyard, he's concerned about the profitability of his agricultural investment. And right. he, he goes out to find workers because there's a labor shortage. How about something ripped from the headlines, right? There's a labor shortage. <laughs> if this harvest fails or a significant portion of it fails, uh, this is going to represent uh, an economic disaster, both for the owner, so there you have private ownership, but also for those who depend on the product of this field. Uh, so he has to go out there and uh, get the, the workers. It really underscores as well the subjectivity of prices, because from the perspective of the first workers, they were satisfied with the agreement. Yeah, And going through the whole day, each of the people, even when they're not told what they're going to be specifically paid, are satisfied because at least there's something. It's only at the end of the day when they can compare that they become envious. In right. fact, that's what the master says. Are you envious because I am generous? And then, of course, the reason that, that the left doesn't comment on this too much is that he says... Uh, don't I have the right to do what I want with my own property? <laughs> I mean, he says it right there explicitly. Yeah. 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 And, uh, and the workers, of course, you know, it, it's the resentment that you see on the part of those who think they have the established 
privileged right. position. You see it in the prodigal of the, uh, I'm sorry, the parable of the prodigal son with the older son as well. He, he you know, has this entitlement mentality. Right. And the father tries to reconcile him in the same way that he reconciles the younger son. He thinks he's paid his time forward and he's about to vest. You owe me. Yeah, you owe me. <laughs> Look, I, I think the vineyard workers is the best, most lasting, enduring, ringing endorsement for Article 1, Section 10 of what would later become the U.S. Constitution, the Contracts Clause. Meaning it, it's also a case for those who study constitutional law, a strong case for, um, you know, Lochner, if you know the Lochner cases. Listen to this. This is Article 1, Section 10 of the U.S. Constitution. No state. So there's one of the few ways that the U.S. federal constitution delimits the states. The, the constitution otherwise just delimits the U.S. fed. But uh, it says, no state shall enter into any treaty alliance or confederation, grant letters of mark or appraisal, coin money, emit bills of credit, make anything but gold and silver coin a tender in payment of debts. And here, these are like the six things state governments aren't allowed to do. State governments are allowed to do everything else. It's the Fed that's not allowed to do most of the stuff in Article 1, Section 8. But here's the, here's the contracts clause. Uh, besides pass any bill of attainder or ex post facto law or law impairing the obligation of contracts or any gra uh, grant any title of nobility. So that's the entire Article 1, Section 10. And that's the point. The, one of the few seven or eight things that a state legislature is not allowed to do, though it's got basically all these implied powers, is to impair the obligation of contracts, which is essentially what the other workers in the vineyard are in a roundabout way asking the employer to do in right. the parable, right? They're, they're, they're yeah. sticking their noses into his business. When he's yes. like, I'm just, all I'm doing here, bro, is overpaying the wage of this guy because I like his face or I feel bad for him or some other undisclosed reason. Isn't that right? This has nothing to do with redistribution. Right. No, I, I think that's uh, quite the case. The one corrective I would offer, Tim, though, is it's when you, and maybe you just said it, uh, without thinking about it. I wouldn't say that the gospel endorses the constitution. No, no, no. I, not, I not was, no, I, no, but I, I think we need to be very clear about this because that's what we're going to be accused of. I know that's what I'm going to be accused of in yeah. writing this book that I've exegeted it. Right. What, what we can say, however, is that there is a way in which the constitution or certainly the founders were inspired by the ethic of the gospel. Course. And so that's what you see. Which which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Well, you're steering clear, Father, with good reason of that which you will certainly be accused of. Like we were talking before we rolled tape of those things that my wife and I have been accused of for writing these two anti Catholic feminism books, The Case for Patriarchy and Ask Your Husband, which will be re released in a couple short weeks, a week and a half, hopefully. Um, and the first thing is the prosperity gospel. The second thing is this crass or false superimposition of the U.S. Constitution into the gospel. No, but what is being explicitly endorsed, explicitly, is the obligation of, uh, impairing the obligation of contracts is immoral. Sure. That is a, sure. a time-honored principle, and that's that's what I was suggesting here. The, yes, the, no, no, I, I knew, I knew what you were saying, but I wanted to be clear because uh, people want to create mischief. <laughs> 
they like they like mischief. Well, I mean, it seems like are you arguing in the book as a kind of overarching thesis? Because it seems strongly this way to me. There is one mind uh, between and among all of these um, economic parables. Uh, I think the economics of these parables, as I see them, uh, to the extent that they speak about property or contract, is a natural law, a kind of uh, a kind of common way of understanding the way one can better deal with resources and property. Um, you always have to keep your eye open because Jesus will then invert the whole thing and put it on its head where the, where the, the strong become weak and the weak become strong in the case of the rich man and Lazarus. You know, it's usually the rich who are known. Their names are known. In that uh, parable, uh, it's the poor man whose name is known. The rich man, we don't know his name. The tradition gives him a name, but we don't know his name. And so it's, it's these reversals that take place are very interesting. So if you don't study it and follow it clearly enough, you will think that this is the whole ethics that's being proposed. And it, it's not. Jesus is always pushing the kingdom of God, the transcendence. And what he's doing it from, the context he's doing it from, is the context of scarcity. So he naturally is going to employ economic metaphors to achieve that end. Yeah, so is it fair to say that scarcity is a morally neutral proposition? It's a human proposition. It's a human context. It's just a given. You can't avoid it. That's why uh, left leaving out the ideology in any society where people are surviving uh, in, a, in a, any sense of a just way, they're going to come up with some form of a market because it's so natural to surviving in the world of scarcity, scarce time, scarce resources. Uh, and you, you have to employ some device to calculate that in order to provide for human betterment. Yeah, you're saying it's a brute fact of human life. I, I often give this analogy to people, Father, you respond to it. It's as brute a fact of human life, and, and, and in this sense, at least morally neutral, if not uh, ennobling, Think of when you're a little kid and you first struck upon the conceit that you could open up a lemonade stand and make cash money, which is exciting. You have no idea of overhead because you're just ripping off your parents' lemonade. <laughs> anyway. But, but leave that to one side for the moment. What you do, I, what I did, because I, I, I've never met a shortcut I didn't like. You know, that was always one of my, <laughs> it's like, hey, we're going we're gonna to get out there. We're going to slang up some, some lemonade and we're going to start seeing what cars stop. We'll just send this, sell this thing for, you know, 10 bucks a glass, sell a few glasses, and then we'll go uh, get some, some, some tasties at the drugstore or whatever we're selling this for. So get some candy. Um, that, that doesn't work because if you're trying $10 a glass, cars don't slow down. The principle right. of scarcity works both ways. Then you might, let's say, overreact to the other side and make it a penny a glass and cars are slowing down too much and they're drinking up all your lemonade and you've sold, I don't know, a, a hundred glasses and you've only made a buck. So then you realize I have to equivocate 
to a place yeah. of economic reasonability. And, right. and I mean, this is what Aristotle will call, dare I say, the natural value of the good. And it is a range. Right. It's not a set thing, but exactly to sell the good, the, lemonade in this case, for what is at least approximates the real economic value of a glass of lemonade it isn't it maybe not morally it might remain maintain its moral neutrality but it is an ontological good right you're providing a good and or a service and you're locating something approximately uh approximating the real value of the the glass of lemonade isn't the, it good? the the truth of the matter is that the price doesn't exist until somebody buys it you can have it in your head uh, that the price of this glass of lemonade is 25 cents a glass. But you could sit there all day, and if you haven't sold a glass of lemonade for 25 cents, then the price isn't 25 cents. And this is one thing about economics that a lot of people don't understand, is that the, the price is not set by the capitalist, but yeah. by the consumer. Uh, moreover, uh, the color of the lemonade. <laughs> is it going to be pink lemonade, or is it going to be lemon lemonade? Uh, or yellow lemonade, um, all of that is dictated by the consumer. And that's another thing that you see played out in a number of these parables. That's interesting. Yeah, you get a stark sense of this when you sell things on eBay. You, you have the, yeah, yeah. Like, right. like me, like young, young Tim Gordon trying to sell a $10 glass of lemonade to a bunch of suckers who, who don't exist. You know, they, no cars slowed down. You have the two modes on eBay, which is a forum where I, I re-up took uh, a hobby from, from childhood collecting uh, sports cards a little later uh -huh. in life. There are two modes by which a uh, seller can sell on eBay. There is the absolute price. Hey, I want to sell you my uh, Michael Jordan rookie card for you know market price plus 50%. And it just sits there. Or the more real-time mode of auctioning, where, you know, where the right. actual value of the, the commodity is uh, circumlocuted. It's come to not by the seller, but by the buyers. It goes up as high as the buyers push it. This is not the story that you're hearing from Pope Francis or from the uh, liberation theologians either. Yeah. Well, they, they have very little acquaintanceship with how a, a market functions and only see it as a... Um, uh, exploited exploitation. You know, it's interesting to see the contradiction in Pope Francis's economic teaching, because on the one hand, he does uh, say that at times, that it's exploitive, and you, you get this sense of it. But then you'll come upon, like in um, Laudato Si, or maybe it was uh, Fratelli Tutti, where he talks about the importance of business people uh, providing jobs for people through their successful enterprise. I forget the exact phrasing he uses, but right. then it just stops there. He doesn't go any further to, to say, well, if that's the case here, what, what about overall? How do people rise out of poverty? Is it just by distribution? Uh, or is distribution, redistribution, charity, exactly for emergency circumstances? Whereas the normative way is that people engage in enterprise. It's the more ennobling way as well, because they're participating in their own amelioration. Yeah, I wish, I wish it were a quantifiable asset. How much I appreciate some commodity that was just given to me 
and, and begins being given to me on a regular basis. If you could quantify that from the mind of God, how lowly I value that commodity versus something that you work hard for. My wife and I were talking about this um, the other day. I talk about it in the context of my forthcoming Regnery book, your books on Regnery. Uh, our, our book is going to be Don't Go to College. And I've also talked about it a great deal in the realm of feminism, where I'm telling people, get married young. To be young and married and a little bit poor is healthy and good when you're 20. It doesn't feel so no. healthy when you're 30 or 40, but when you're young and you're just excited that you could do whatever you want after you graduated high school, like Paul and Paula, you, you, this is the most beautiful thing in the world. You can marry whoever you want, and you're no longer under the household of, of your, your fathers, you or your wives. Now you have freedom, economic freedom and moral freedom, and you can run the kind of household you want. And it's worth a little bit of poverty, isn't it? To see, and whatever assets you're able to bring in, if you're just a, a young married person, you enjoy them, you treasure them so much more than if they were given to you by a redistributive state on the one hand, or you, you enjoy them more than you will in 10 or 20 years when you've got more economic wealth. They're just worth that much more to you. I always wish you could quantify that somehow. Yeah, I, I think it is difficult to quantify that. I, I, I share that experience. I didn't grow up. Our, our, my family was working class. And there was just something about having to be attentive to what you had and what you needed and how you could work the circumstance so that you could get a little bit more out of something. I mean, to this day, I still will put water in a shampoo bottle and shake it to get the last, yeah. because I remember my dad doing that. He said, don't just throw that out. You know, you can get another shampoo out of that one. Uh, and what that does is it brings out of you something that you see played out in these parables. And that is attentiveness. The treasure hidden in the field was discovered by someone who was obviously looking and uh, drew it out and then puts it back and goes and buys the whole field. The yeah. attentiveness uh, that is required as a habit. Uh, and that I think is what uh, scarcity can, can do in a certain margin. I mean, you don't want a person not being able to live, you know, I mean, if they don't have enough to live on literally then uh, you have a whole different circumstance. And that's where charity kicks in. When wrapping up here, Father, excellent chat, as always, about your book, The Economics of the Parables, put out by Regnery. Uh, and we'll, it's on pre-order now, but except it will actually hit on May the 10th, which is right. exciting for you. But uh, we have a super chat question. Yes. Uh, people, people out there uh, realizing what you're pitching in real time and, and recasting this question at you. This person says, what, what about economic personalism? The book called Economic Personalism by Graney and Broan. Do you know this book? I don't know it. Um, it's a relatively new book, isn't it? Uh, years ago, we had the Center for Economic Personalism at the Acton Institute. Uh, and it really is derived from, if this is, I haven't read this book. I, I don't think, I may have seen it in a draft form, but I, I haven't read the whole thing. Uh, but my understanding of the personalism is it kind of comes out of the phenomenology uh, of uh, not only the phenomenologists, but, but John Paul, uh, all of which kind of goes back to Husserl 
and even further back to, uh, in the economic sense, uh, Mises uh, and uh, the, the founders of phenomenology. And it breaks off into uh, certainly a psycho, uh, psychological form of personalism. Uh, and then the economic form of personalism, which is the Austrians, and we consider ourselves a part of that tradition. And then, of course, the theological, as you see in, in the philosophical in, in John Paul II. This engagement, the reverence for the human person, the, the recognition that value emerges from the human person, because it's the human person who's attentive to things as they are in themselves, and uh, I, I like the notion. Also, the moral teaching of um, what you see in uh, the uh, theology of the body. That's another form of, of personalism. So the economic personalism really puts the human being at the center, both in their creative dimension, but also just in their, um, their metaphysics. This really answers the question of of egalitarianism, because human beings are equal at the most fundamental level of their being, and that is in their ontology, uh, in who they are as a creation of God, and the accidents of their existence, the way they look, their intellectual capacity, don't determine uh, the sense of justice. Oh, that's beautiful. I, I'm friends with a couple who have a really, really, really new and yet Thomistic, uh, exciting personality system, uh, much, much, much more Catholic, innately Catholic, called uh, NCAPS. And they, they're really into JP2's personalism. And more than anything, the science is amazing. I, I, I'd really? like to introduce you to them behind the scenes, Father. Sure, I'd, like, I'd be very interested in that. It, you, would, you would like it. I know I, I, I'm, I have a strong inclination toward that. But look, congratulations on your book. Thank uh, you. It, it just looks fascinating. I haven't gotten to read it yet, which is why we had a more uh, roundabout conversation of the economics of the parables. This is one I will read. You can bet your bottom dollar by Regnery. Uh, so this means we're, we're label mates here because I'm- We're I'm, cousins. Yeah, cousins. <laughs> yeah, uh, don't go to college and the economics of the parables. It's, it's a great publishing house. 75 okay. years of publishing you know, books like these. Yeah, the, the top name in, in conservative secular publishers Absolutely. around the world, Absolutely. just they're, they're at the top of the ladder. And they, they were the first English publishers uh, or American publishers of Guardini as well. Oh, did I didn't you know that. Yeah, Guardini. And uh, also did uh, Human Action, Mises. <laughs> I did know that. I did yeah. know that. that that's, that's a good one. And their politically incorrect guidebook series. I just finished an introduction to the Constitution course that I teach on timothyjgordon.com. Folks out there listening, we're going to have a flash sale on summer uh, pre-recorded courses at the Retrograde Academy at timothyjgordon.com. With uh, the, the Constitution course I just taught is a Regnery book. They have a series, Father. I know you yes, know. Yes, I know. No, I was invited to do one of them, but I thought it was a little too uh, edgy. <laughs> Interesting. The Politically Incorrect Guide series? Yes, yes. I've well, forgotten the one that they asked me to, to do. It was either on economics or Catholicism. I've forgotten which. Ooh, and Tom Woods, who I know you know, yes, uh, yes. he did a couple of them. Some of the real cutting edge thinkers in terms of 
Catholic uh, Catholic available economics from the Austrian school um, right. work for the politically incorrect guide. Anyway, Regnery is just cutting edge. I'm, I'm very proud to be associated with them. And I'm, I'm excited for this book to come out. People go purchase this right now. It's on pre-order. The Economics of the Parables. Father, Father Robert Sirico, any parting shots? Thank you. No, I, I just want to thank you for the opportunity to be with you. It's uh, St. John Paul II said that economics or entrepreneurship, he said, throws practical light back onto the gospel. And that's what I tried to do uh, in this text. I'm grateful for the opportunity to share that with you and, and your uh, collaborators. Thank you so much, Robert Sirico, Father, Father Robert Sirico, and everyone out there, go pick up the book. Stay tuned. We got a couple other exciting, unique shows for you later this week. Uh, you're going you're gonna to hear from me tomorrow. Hopefully, we have an article, um, uh, Dr. Michael Robillard and myself coming up on Fox News an op-ed on five reasons not to go to college. It's supposed to hit tomorrow morning. You always cross your fingers with op-eds. So uh, if, if that comes up, you'll, you'll see uh, two shows in two days from, from me and I'll have Dr. Robillard on. Uh, Father Sirico, as always, it's, it's exciting to have you on the show because I've Thank admired you. your work for a long time. Happy have a great day. Thank Everyone you. out there, stay tuned. God bless. Love your wives and kids. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit.